Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At the Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This is Ahmed Zappa. You're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology, the fucking best show there is. Welcome to Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party, a Pantheon podcast. Music, culture, conversation. And good old-fashioned rock and roll. So now, I give you Miss Pamela and her pajama party. Hello, dolls. You have entered Miss Pamela's pajama party. So put on your jammies and get cozy on your couch and listen to me. I have an amazing guest today. Anyway, I'm a groupie as you probably know by now. And if being a groupie, all it means is loving music, being around musicians you love, getting to know them. I often say it's another word for love. And um, I'm on Pantheon Podcasts. Those are my bosses. So, you know, be nice to them, okay? They take care of me. And we have so many podcasters. I can't, you know, there's 60 or more now. So we're, I think we're, the biggest music podcast of all time. So you're in the right place. Anyway, today I have an incredible guest. I was a guest of his in his new doc, Zappa. And I got the thrill of having him interviewed today. And and it's you're gonna enjoy him so much because he is of course in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and, and this, all the Bill and Ted's, and I actually just watched Face the Music, that it is hysterical. And, you know, they, they act exactly the same way, only they're middle-aged men, so it really is hysterical and very funny. And somebody plays Jimi Hendrix in it, and he does a really good job. So check that movie out, and you're about to listen to Alex Winter. Where you going with that flower in your hand? Hey, Pop, where you going with that flower in your hand? 
call up a Frisco to join a psychedelic band. I'm going up to Frisco to join a psychedelic band. Hey, punk, where you going with that button on your shirt? Hey, punk, where you going with that button on your shirt? I'm going to the love and to sit and play my bongos in the dirt. Well, thank you for giving us a little of your time. I know you're a busy fella. No, of course. Are you busy during this time frame? Yeah, we're doing all right. You know, I mean, at this point, we're all kind of used to it. We've been hunkered down since March. We're about to go on this global festival tour with Zappa starting literally the day everything shut down, pretty much. God. So, yeah. <laughs> so. And after years of putting it together, like five years, right? Yeah, almost six. It was a it was a beast. I mean, what do you expect? It's Zappa, right? <laughs> Oh wow, I uh, I loved it. Oh, I, thank I loved you. It. I mean, I, you know, I I'm a little trepidatious about some of the Zappa stuff, and uh, certainly, as you know, the whole family was so protective of yeah. him. That's Gail, especially. Oh my God. Um, and you know, so some of the stuff I haven't liked very much, but this, I think, you really captured him. His, the, the the depth of him. A lot of people think of Frank, you know, in, in lighthearted terms because of his lyrics or whatever. But yeah. wow, really got him. Great. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, look, there was no intention to try to nail it, right, or nail him, or like wrap it up with some kind of bow, or 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 you know, feel like we're saying this is who he definitively was or something. It was really just a desire, like to me. He always was a serious artist. I mean, I enjoy the, the the stuff that I love his sense of humor, but he seemed like a pretty sober guy. I mean, beyond his literal sobriety, um, yes. and, you know, I, I really did want to convey that, that uh, that seemed like the, the artist that was in there. Um, and obviously the, the archival material speaks to that. So we kind of leaned into that stuff. How much did you have to go through? How much archival material did you sit through? I, I, I can't even fathom it. I mean, it, it was an, it was, it was mammoth, you know, from the moment that, that, cause I didn't ask Gail for, for the rights to the vault. Um, when I went in and pitched her the story, I, you know, I, I had a very specific idea in mind and I felt I could do it just fine with, with existing archival. Um, but she didn't, she said that, you know, uh, this, this kind of very intimate personal, story that I was hoping to tell, she didn't think the material was out there. She's like, look, it's all here. It's not out there. You're going to find some. But, uh, you know, as you said, she was pretty protective of of uh, his legacy. And so it was like it was a, really a blessing and a curse because it really was all blessing. But it was a lot of labor to both preserve that media and then to go through the lion's share of it and figure out what was going to be of use to us. And then what we would have to make, what tough decisions we would have to make to not use certain other aspects of it. But we watched, you know, many, many hundreds of hours of media. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that, I mean, you must have gotten to know him like 
pretty intimately watching all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, both literally because, you know, it was the 60s, as you know, you were there in the 70s and and there was a lot of very, very intimate footage down there. I would digitize some of it and then sort of send it back over to Joe Travers or whoever back at the ZT and be like, I got this coming. They're like, I'm not sure we need to see that. I'm like, I'm I'm not sure you do either, to be totally honest with you. Um, but it, honestly... <laughs> have a bed down in the basement where he recorded right yeah <laughs> <laughs> See, i remember that time frame Oy. yeah yeah exactly so there's you know I've, I've seen all of frank let's put it that way um <laughs> uh, but uh you okay know, but it was also i mean you know, not to try to put like a patina on it, but it was also like everything was so artful. Like the the you know, he was filming a lot of this stuff himself. Um, the whole crowd back then, as you know, was was you know, all of you were very gifted artists in your own right, and so the media, even if it was whatever it was, was really beautiful. You know, this beautiful eight mil and sixteen mil, and then ultimately video it was all very gorgeous and very evocative of the time. Um, I mean, I was so grateful to find that Sunset Strip footage. It's really hard to find Sunset Strip archival footage from that era. Almost impossible. You must have had a lot of people digging that stuff up for you, right? I mean, I can't even imagine that either. And and the I hadn't seen some of the GTO stuff. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? So cool to see. and Because I remember her being filmed, you know, and Gail wouldn't even let me see that stuff. She was more protective of anything that had to do with, you know, I don't know. But anyway, it was great to see. So thank you for letting me. Yeah. Yeah, the stuff at the Cheetah. And I mean, all the stuff is the stuff at the Whiskey. Um, it's it's pretty amazing. Uh, and we were, you know, it, it's a, a real artful, but also very uh, intimate chronicle of that era. Like you, we really felt that was why doing the work, Mike Nichols, the editor and I, it was very rewarding because it was a real eye into a time that you just don't see that kind of footage for most of the time. Yes, very much so. Did you, have you ever seen any footage of Vito and Carl, the dancers that, that danced with the mothers quite a, a bit? A little bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, people just wouldn't believe what was really going on there. No, no matter what, and no matter how you try to describe it, uh, or, or people talk about what was going on back then, <laughs> it's kind of indescribable, really. And you were able to capture some of that. So that's very cool. People are going to really appreciate that forever. And you've got 96 Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. yeah, we've been very um, we've been very grateful for the response. You know, you you when you commit to making docs, you are often doing it because you firmly believe, you know, passionately in, in the subject. But you don't really know what how much other people are going to care. Right. And yeah. that was, you know, I remember when I first sat down with Gail. And, and I didn't know Gail. I mean, I knew of her, obviously. Her reputation was was pretty, uh, was I'm legendary and mythical. Um, but I didn't know her. And I remember one of the first things she said to me when I kind of pitched her what I wanted to do, which was this very expansive, you know, sleeves rolled up intimate examination. She's like, 
no one gives a shit about Frank Zappa, you know, and, and she didn't mean the fans, obviously the fans care, but she was just like, look, the world at large. Big picture. Yeah. And I said, well, I think they should. And I think they could. Um, and that was kind of the flyer that we took. And I, and so I'm really grateful that we've had the response we've had where, where people that I didn't expect to like the film have really responded to it. And, and, um, it's getting a far kind of wider, uh, uh, distribution and response than I expected. So it's a good thing. Well, it has a lot to do probably with people at home watching TV, which is, it's, it's actually turned out to be pretty good timing for it. I think, I think yeah. more people are. Sure. But I'm sorry you didn't get to go to the festival. Yeah. I mean, the thing about a movie um, that is reassuring is it's kind of evergreen. You know, we will have our day in the theaters to, you know, we will get the big retro houses and, and no, we didn't get the theatrical festival rollout, but we certainly got a festival rollout and they did an amazing job. We're actually just launching in, uh, globally right now, like literally I've been doing press all morning for like Holland and Australia. Oh, and oh wow. Okay. So we have the whole rest of the world in front of us still, which is exciting. And you, and you did a lot of it through a fundraiser, right? Yeah. Well, what we did, the doc itself was independently financed, but what we did was when I saw the vault, um, uh, you know this. I, I certainly knew of the vault. I'd even seen like the YouTube clips of Frank walking around in it. I kind of knew what it was, but I did not realize how expansive <laughs> it was. And I mean, it just went on. Oh my God! It went on and on and on, as you know. And uh, and the family had done a really good job, and Joe Travers of preserving, you know, audio and and taking care of of Frank's musical legacy. Um, but there was a lot of, of stuff that was old. They didn't know, even know what it was. It's like old film and video that was really on its way out. And uh, so the Kickstarter campaign was was 100% focused on preserving that media on the media that was endangered. And we spent, we raised a million and a quarter, um, which was a lot of money. Um, and, but we spent all of that, other than on reward fulfillment, we spent every penny of that on on our preservation of the media, which was very expensive and very time consuming. So uh, a couple of years of work just on that before we even took our begging bowl out and went looking for money to make the documentary. <laughs> Big labor. <laughs> I mean, amazing. And, and apparently, from what I've read, it's the most money ever gotten for a uh, music project, right? Yeah, it was the uh, it was the highest funded uh, sort of documentary oriented project on in crowdfunding history, which was great. And it's but that speaks to the fans. Like to me, that's yes, we did a lot of work, uh, but it tells you um, that there is a lot of Zappa fans out there, and there's a lot of people who were very concerned that any media of his uh, that was behind lock and key was was not going to survive. Um, and I think there was a, a huge. Uh, groundswell of support from fans around the world just to say, look, while you're in there, yes, please make sure this stuff is taken care of. Um, so we took we took that very seriously. Well, I think also the fact that you were you were the director, you 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 made it happen. You, a lot of your friends fans care a lot about that too, right? And yeah. I think you you know turned many many more people onto Zappa than 
someone else might have had they done the documentary. <laughs> uh, maybe. I mean, we we certainly we threw everything. We were shameless, right? We, we threw every resource we had at this thing, and uh, and and really because we believed in 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 Frank, and um, and, and it was really borne out. You know, I, I, I again, I, I told Gail that from the outset, look, I, I don't want to shrink away from from who, you know, look, I, we did the interview together. We talked about this stuff openly. It's in the movie. You've got great stuff to say about this. It's it's you can love him and still recognize that he was a human being and that he was a human being with flaws. He was a human being with with kind of internal contradictions. And I really wanted to get at all that. And 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 as close as I got to him and as, as dirty as I, as I was able to see him in, in that way, psychologically, I ended up admiring him even more coming out the other end. It was a really great experience. You know, I didn't think, I didn't dismiss the aspects of him that were problematic, but I just, you know, I, I really fell in love with the human being. He's just an endlessly fascinating person. But he always, he always did exactly what he wanted to do. <laughs> no matter what and uh you know gail went into that relationship knowing that was part of it his philandering and i i really admired that you went there because you know it was almost surprising that you know but you know when you think about it he was a man in his early mid-20s early 30s you know he was yep. hey and he had every kind of lady after him, um, and and he enjoyed it. And uh, Gail knew about it. It wasn't something that she necessarily applauded, but you know, she she accepted it to some degree. You know, and and I'm I thought it was great that you went there. Even the stuff Ahmed said was pretty, you know, interesting. That you know, accepting of that history of their dad. Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. And look, it's not easy. You know, I, I said to, to the family and to, 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 I mean, they're not kids, but to their children, when I, when I first started nosing around this thing that, um, that that was important to me to dig into. And also that I, you know, I, I'm, I'm their age, you know, I'm 55. I grew up in the, in the sixties and seventies and my parents were modern dancers in, in London. And then, um, all yeah. over the U.S. and I grew up in an extremely bohemian household with two parents who were very sexually liberated, to put it mildly. Oh. And look, there's, there are aspects of that that are really in, admirable, and then there are aspects of it from the child's perspective that are really, or the these partners' perspective that are really challenging. And sure. uh, and I lived that. I grew up with that kind of. I grew up in that kind of household, and I was a latchkey kid with two artist parents, basically. Um, and you didn't know who you were coming home to or what, you know. And sometimes they'd be like, "Don't look that way," because no one over there is wearing clothes. Um, just let's just go up to my room and you know, and we'll do our homework. What, what city uh, did you go? London, uh, and then St. Louis, and then New York City. Okay. So. Hey, wow. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you, you learn to accept a lot of it because you have to, otherwise you go nuts. Um, and, but I was, how, how did you turn out, you know, with those, Bohemian, I mean, did you kind of go against that lifestyle or did you embrace it? I, I, I kind of. Look, I mean, you end up doing a lot of work on on your childhood, right? <laughs> so uh, 
I came out the other end with a lot of admiration for my parents, a lot of acceptance. Um, there were things they did really well. There were things they did really poorly um, as far as their parenting went. Uh, but, um, you know, they, they, they also taught me a lot, you know, like not unlike the Zappas, they were very politically uh, in the right place. They were very active. They were very moral. Um, and so you learn to, to start to unpack the, the complexities of, of, of life, right? That people are often not one thing or the other. Um, and making docs, that's a big part of what you do when you make docs. You're getting in, if you really have an open mind, you, you're going in not trying to really peg someone as, as being this or that, but all of the messy realities of what it means to be a, a human being. Well, all of your docs are so well received. That must feel amazing, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, I like I like making them. Um, uh, I like the format a lot. I've worked in a lot of different kinds of media. I've been in the business since I was a little kid. You know, I came up as a child actor, so um, I like telling stories with real people. I find really real people infinitely fascinating and. Uh, you know, it's a great format. Uh, and also, as you were saying before, not just the pandemic, which has certainly made everybody captive to their to their media at the moment. Um, but in general, I think with streaming and, and the culture that we live in, it's a really good time for documentary. And uh, and the world is very confusing right now to a lot of people. So it's just a great medium for unpacking this crazy world we're living in at the moment. Well, last year, <clears throat> Showbiz Kids got a lot of attention and also has 96 tomatoes. That's incredible. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it was a crazy year. I didn't expect to roll out three movies in, in one year and, the, and that year being, uh, you know, one of the hardest years in, in of the last hundred years. Um, but, you know, <laughs> you, kinda, you know how it is. You've been, you've been in this business a long time. You kind of roll with it, right? <laughs> yeah, well, if you don't, you can't stay in it. That's for sure. Yeah. I want I'm very curious about your um, music history and, you know, what, like, did, did your parents turn you on to the music you got into? Is that, is that how you heard about, I mean, were you into classic rock or, you know, like, like what was the first record you bought? Do you remember? Um, well, you, to, you know, I was born in London uh, and modern dance at that time was, was pretty hip and bohemian. So my parents, my parents' friends were, were artists and musicians largely. So, you know, one of my earliest memories is sitting on the floor. I couldn't be in more than two or three with the St Rolling Stones, you know, that octagonal Stones cover, um, yeah. the original. Yeah. And just spinning that. Um, and like, I remember the Stones being, a, a, you know, it was, it was the era of the Beatles. It was the era of the Stones and the Who in London. Um, we were going to shows at the Roundhouse. Um, and I was like five. You know, so I was one of those kids, probably barefoot, you know, yelling around rock shows in London in the 60s. Um, so, you know, so I came up with a lot of. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. I don't know if I don't know if either of us ever learned to put shoes on. I know I haven't. But, um, you know, I, I came up with a very eclectic musical background because of that. And, and it's one of the reasons I was able to appreciate Zappa. My mom was was composing choreographing pieces to Pink Floyd and, and Schoenberg. Um, and, you know, as much as people were talking in the, in the early days when Zappa came out of oh, how 
how hard it was to wrap your head around someone who would who was influenced as much by you know spike jones and blues and doo-wop as he was by stravinsky you know to me that it made total sense and you know people who were really artistically connected were often more expansive you know, you know this. It's like a lot of the people from that era, they weren't just listening to the genre that they were in. They were listening to everything that they could get their hands on. Um, so. I was friends with John Van Vliet as well. Talk mm-hmm. about expansive. <laughs> so, you know, those people altered my brain cells too completely uh, to where I could accept almost any kind of thing that went on. Um, you pr- probably with you too. But when you were, how old were you when you got into Zappa, for instance? Were your parents well, playing it? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 my brother's a musician. He's a piano player. Um, he was classically trained, but most of, mostly rock and blues. Um, so growing up in the 70s, most of our friends' older brothers were huge and sisters were huge Zappa people. Um, so you'd be, you know, in someone's garage clubhouse in a haze of pot smoke at like eight years old with your older brothers and sisters spinning whatever. Um, it would have been, uh, you know, in those days, apostrophe, overnight sensation. We we're talking about 70s, mid 70s. By then I was in St. Louis and I was a class, I mean, I was a classic rock kid. And, um, you know, while I had all this more eclectic music around me, I was really a classic rock kid. And uh, my first show, my first concert that I bought my own tickets to was to see Kiss uh, at the Checker Dome in 76, maybe 77. Um, and uh, I mean, I was seeing like whatever came through town. My brother was turning me on to all kinds of more interesting music. So uh, I got turned on to Zappa on SNL, his two SNL appearances. It was really that cut and dry. He had a big impact on us on those appearances. And as much as he hated doing them, to my my social group, we were all like at school the next going, did you see that, that Frank Zappa guy on Saturday Night Live? Like that guy's a trip, you know? Uh, so that's where it started. (laughs) (laughs) Follow any rules. That's for sure. And, you know, he inspired so many other people because of that. So many other musicians, right? How about growing up with Don though? How about that history that, you know, in Lancaster of all places and, how how those two? I still can't get over it. How how they came from the squarish families. Although yeah. I see this painting behind here. That's yeah. a Victor. Thing. Oh wow! Victor Cajun was the mascara snake in in the band. Yep. <laughs> and he went to my high school. So this is how I got indoctrinated very very young. Yeah, and I'm so grateful. So sounds like you are too. Oh, yeah. And I, I had, you know, I was a huge Beefheart fan um, and I had known about their history together. Uh, and there were there were a few things I was looking for the second I got the keys to the vault. Um, and one of those one of them was uh, Zappa's tenure at the Garrick Theater, which had huge interest for me. Um, and I, I grilled Gail about it and she didn't actually know that much about it. So I was a little like, ah, I want to, I mean, she knew what happened, but I was, she didn't have enormous insight into where his head was at, um, at that period. And, um, uh, and so I felt a little like a, like a, you know, archeologist, like I'm going to find the Garrick and I'm going to find childhood content of, of Don and Frank. And, uh, and we just kept digging until we found, we couldn't believe that the footage that we found, 
of Don and Frank together, which is like we use literally every frame of it in the doc. Like it's it's. Ooh, I wondered about that. If there was yeah, I mean more. that's. That's what's there. Like I, it was, I, you know, if I'd have found two hours, I would have stopped and made a Don and Frank movie instead and been like, sorry, you're just watching this for two hours. But um, that's what I found. And we were really grateful. Um, and there they were with the Coca-Cola, just like Zappa always told the stories and, um, and you know, a floor littered with soda cans and R&B records. It was all right there. Uh, it was really, it was pretty special, I got to say. And where was that footage? It was just in Frank's archives somewhere. And it was in the archives. The way that stuff works is Frank was very, very, as you know, like he was with everything. He was extremely thorough, but there was so much media. It was impossible. He was he wasn't an archivist. He was an artist. So he would often take media, transfer it onto again onto another form of film or video, and then rework it, transfer that onto other video. So we would find Mike Nichols and I would find like a a, a clue, like oh. There's him and Don, but this is obviously shot on eight mil, but we have it on a videotape. Now we got to find the eight mil and there's no boxes labeled. And it's like, we'd find half of it in, in one box, the other half in another box, maybe some sound. It was, it was like that. It was like that with everything, but it was really, especially like that with the childhood stuff. It was like a puzzle that had been loaded into a can and just blown into the room. And we had to find the pieces and put them back together again. Oh, it's such a great job. It was so, you know, I gasp when I see footage of Don, you know, it's just so thrilling. I was, I was the, their fan club president for the San Fernando Valley. <laughs> <laughs> I got to see them play, you know, safe as milk. Mm. I mean, I mean, that's amazing. So blessed, I know. Was that a great record? Yeah, it's the best. It's the best. I know. <laughs> <laughs> And my favorite Zappa albums are uh, "We're Only in It for the Money," yep. which, I mean, he was put he put things down, which were really hip at the time. Yeah. I mean, flower punk is my favorite, is my absolute favorite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the Fillmore East, you know, was Flo and Eddie. Yeah. Great era that was for him. Yeah, it's an, an amazing time, and. Uh, uh, we were really lucky that there was material there. Obviously we were using material from the vault and then we were just scouring the world for anything else we could get. And sometimes one little piece of content would be a collage of stuff from the vault, not from the vault, even some of the stuff with, with you guys, with the GTOs, like some of that stuff is a combination of vault and then just whatever we could get our hands on from wherever, like we got this shot. Can you find the other part of it? And sometimes someone would say, yeah, sometimes they would say no, but I have this other thing that I think is from the same night. Sometimes it was, sometimes we just cheated. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it became like a, like a, you know, a, a, a mission to go and hunt down as much of this stuff as we could to piece those eras back together. But, you know, finding the footage of, of putting the we're only in it for the money cover together was pretty special with Hendrix, everybody. So fantastic. Yeah. Speaking of the guy you, you got to play him in Face the Music was pretty good. He was, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, man. He's, yeah. Super talented. Scenes. And also, you know, I was, Noel Redding was one of my bows. So yeah. to see someone walking behind <laughs> big hair like that, I went, oh my yeah. God, it was a total flashback. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Both those guys were really fantastic. He, who played, uh, the actor who played um, uh, Louis Armstrong was also really great. Yeah. But I was, yeah. 
Did you have anything to do with casting any of those people? Or? None at all. I mean, we, we were in really good hands, thankfully. Dean Pariso, the director, is super talented, and, and Jeannie McCarthy, the casting director, and, and her team were super, super talented. Um, you know, we're lucky with Bill and Ted that for whatever wacky reason the franchise had, the fans, the fans we have are very ardent fans, and so a lot of actors showed up and just wanted to be in it. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky. That's I know. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't laugh much at comedies. I'm not a comedy person, but I cracked up. Oh, good. Yeah, I loved it. And when 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 there was Hendrix and Satchmo and all that, it was like, wow, this is the yeah. coolest thing. That must have been so fun to go back to that. It was. It was really fun. And, and it was, you know, it was moving because so many of the people involved were friends of mine and have been friends of mine my whole life. You know, it it was like a band reunion in that way, um, because, you know, I was I don't know, 19, 20, 21 when I did the first few. And and Keanu and I are, are really close friends. But, you know, we don't see you know, we'll talk to Ed and Chris Ed Solomon, Chris Matheson. They're friends of ours. but We didn't get to spend that much time with them or Scott, our, our producer. We had like crew that came back that worked on the first two. Um, so it was really a very warm environment. It was a very familial environment. And uh, and we also like, not, it's not cynical because we really cared about the fans and, and we weren't being cavalier. We didn't really, there was, we didn't really want to make it unless we could just make something that we thought would be cool. You know what I mean? So we didn't have like a, a the biggest commercial agenda. It was just like, Look, if we're going to make a Bill and Ted movie, we're going to make it's going to be as weird as the other two, and as like you know idiosyncratic as the other two. And if you dig it, oh, you got that, you got yeah. It. <laughs> if you don't, whatever you know. So yeah. I mean, we had Steve Vai. We had when I went into Zappa's office for the first time, he had both of the first two movies soundtracks in his cassette box. Frank, because Dweezil's on both of them, and Steve Vai is all over the second one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, how fun. Did yeah. you see Frank ever? Did you see him? I never got to see him play live. I saw Dweezil quite a bit back in the day. I mean, I've seen him in, in current times. Um, he's amazing. But I saw him play. I saw him play at the Whiskey and stood next to Frank all night. In oh. I think in 90 or 91. Yeah. And to be fair, Zappa, Frank, like, did not. He didn't take his eyes off that stage for one minute. He was all over it. Good to hear. Because he wasn't a... I'm not going to say he was a, a bad dad or anything because when he was a dad, he was, he was a good dad, but he just wasn't a dad very often. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> How do you make 60 <laughs> albums during your lifetime and, uh, and parent all day long? Yeah. It's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Moon has told me the story more than once about, you know, how she, how Valley girl happened was because she wanted to be with him. Yeah. She wanted to, and she was, you know, she was very much like him and still is in, in sense of humor and irony and everything. She's just awesome. Yeah. Yeah. She's got a great way. Friendly with the entire crew of kids. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I know. But it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's something I can identify with growing up in, in that kind of family. You know, it has its, it has its uh, repercussions. It's, it's, an, it's inevitable. And whether it's them or, you know, the family I grew up in, you know, the sort of artists at the time, there are other very famous families that, that 
you know, came up from that era. It was an extremely fraught period. And it was an interesting era because, you know, as you know so well, and you chronicled this yourself, it was like trying to understand and parse what was going on culturally, capitalize on it, enjoy it, not lose yourself in it, not lose your sanity, your soul, your morality, your your own sense of who you are. <laughs> For sure. I mean, you know, that's one of the reasons I wanted to make the doc. I find it really fascinating. I don't find it black and white at all. And, and I'm in some ways envious. I was always somewhat envious of my parents. Like, even when I was a little kid, watching their lives and the, the sort of the sense of, of kind of liberated excitement, you know, they were World War II kids. They weren't, you know, it was, if you came up in the 50s and, and 60s like that, you were the front end, you know, the, the, nothing came before you. So I, I would look at them and think, gosh, like even young, how amazing to experience that. And then like, I get what, I get the eighties, I get fucking new wave and like, <laughs> like my high school experience is like <laughs> Ronald Reagan and new wave. Really? What a gyp. I'm a very positive person. I try to find the good and everything, but man, the eighties music. Oh my I'm God. Thank God for, for, for me, it was Prince and Springsteen that saved the eighties for me. Yeah, it was amazing. The music that was amazing was absolutely amazing. There was just very little of it. Yeah. Yes, agreed. And, you know, there was so much for us that I had to choose certain nights, whether it's either Who, The Doors, or, or you know, The Birds down the street at the trip. I mean, you had to choose. You had to plan your night because there were so many options. Yeah. Was there any sense at that time how not fleeting, because I don't mean it in a disparaging way at all, but just like, even just the night you said that like, this is history. And if I miss this, I'm never seeing the doors do that set at that club ever again. Of course, I, I had that. I can't say everybody around me did. I was not one of the people who was addictive. So, you know, I got high and all that stuff, but I, yeah. I, I remember stuff. And I, <laughs> and I remember thinking, wow, Someone's going to want to know about this right now. Like the night Jim Morrison crawled up on stage with the 1910 Fruit Gum Company. Yeah. And their mic away and put it down his pants. This is like, you know, I knew that was not, probably would never happen again anywhere. never had happened. And yeah. the look on their faces and their little matching outfits. I mean, it's indescribable. And I have hundreds of those moments. So luckily I kept my diaries with me. I had them in my purse. So, yeah. so I chronicled, like you mentioned earlier, I chronicled that stuff because I knew it was just not going to come again. And it, and it was, I, you know, when you're that age, I was 18, 19, 20, 21. It didn't seem fleeting. It seemed yeah. like all encompassing, but yeah. I knew how much music, especially, I mean, the music was leading the charge. And reflecting, Dylan, of course, is God, reflecting what was going on in my head. I could hear, I heard a Dylan song, and how does he know that? How does yeah. he know so much of that, too? The, the interaction between the, the fans and the listeners and the musicians themselves. There wasn't such a separation. You yeah. could bump into all of the stones at the whiskey watching Ray Davies and the Kinks, you know. It was that. Yeah, kind. that was something that I had always. Uh, assumed as well uh, and partly because of the the family I grew up in you realize that that community was actually incredibly tight-knit and really small and I was really grateful 
that you spoke so well on that in the doc because I was really hoping to get that essence across that like especially now you look at the way everything is so hyper mythologized and I really wanted to and not in a just in a realistic way demythologize the that era a bit like you like you said in the film you if you went to the Tom Mix cabin it was like a salon you know it was like a bunch it could have been could have been anyone it was just everybody was hanging out and it was a fairly small tight knit group whatever country they were from um, and that's the way the world functioned back then. It's so different in that way today. You really are siloed. It's very rare to see other artists that you know or people that you know and intermingle with them in any way that's meaningful. Really, yeah, really there rare. Gatherings. There are always gatherings. There was no <clears throat> fear. You know, John Lennon was still alive with us. There was no fear that anyone was going to intervene and, and harm us. You know, it was yeah. the, or the merrier. I mean... Everybody wanted to meet Frank. So, so luckily, I mean, the groupie that I was, you know, they would look me up so they could go get an introduction to Frank, a lot of the British guys. So, yeah, yeah over there and we'd all hang out. It was just, it was magical, man. One of my favorite Zappa moments was watching him compose. Mm. Because I often think some of his lyrics were afterthoughts to go with the music. Right? Right. And he would just sit there at the piano, right, at the cabin, sit there in front of the fireplace with all the GTOs around him and just compose out of his head. It was, I, I, I to me at that time, like, what, what is he doing? He'd look up, then write some notes. It was just like, wow. <laughs> it was just so cool to be a part of that. I mean, yes, just so cool. Just the coolest time ever. Yeah. You captured, you, you managed to keep the myth, which was, important i think and exposing at the same time but just enough so that the myth survives well there are, i mean as you know there there are accuracies to to greatness right and you know there there are things about zappa that um that are really profoundly uh culturally important and and meaningful and i i certainly wanted to highlight those things I find those to be strengthened by the realities of who a human being is, not weakened. You know, I feel yeah. like like suddenly to me, I came through this whole process and had far more admiration for him than I did going in. Uh, probably more appreciation for him than I did going in, even though I was a big fan going in. And I even, you know, his political work and his humor, as well as his musical brilliance, was important to me when I was young. But, you know, realizing the challenges that he faced, realizing how human his life was, being around so much his media of just him talking, not for the public, but just shooting the shit with his buddies in the in the basement, uh, of which I had hours because he would just roll video on all of it. Um, you know, a lot of humility and a lot of vulnerability. And he, he was, he was, you know, he had bills to pay like the rest of us, and he had to make that work his business function. Uh, I found that very admirable. Yeah, he was he was ripped off a lot because he was the artist. And yeah, and Herb Cohen, who managed all of us, just stole all his money. <laughs> it was really a terrible thing. I couldn't even mention Herb's name in front of Gail long after Frank passed. I mean, and and we were, <clears throat> I was still sort of friendly with him through the years until he took Cynthia Plastercaster to court to. Right. Yeah, I remember that. For that. Yeah. And when I saw what he was trying to do to these penises that were so important to this lady. Yeah. Her, her 
wife's art, I realized that Gail was right. You know, Gail knew that he was just a shyster and a monster. It was sad for me because he was always kind to me. But, yeah, Frank was ripped off horribly. <laughs> yeah, well, you realize, you know, for for the, you know, I had to cut through a lot of the swath of, of animus towards them for their protectiveness. Um, right. And a lot of people came out of the woodwork to warn me um, about that. Uh, and the reality was, um, I mean, A, I got along incredibly well with Gail. We became really close and I spent a lot of time at the house, uh, in 2015, just talking mm -hmm. to her. Um, uh, and it's not to, you know, absolve her of anything or to try to like, you know, uh, overpaint a, a particular picture, but look, you know, they were, they, they were basically a mom and pop rock outfit and it was, and it's an extremely cutthroat business and, artists are routinely screwed and you know on the one hand you're saying oh you know they're too protective and she was and look i'm the guy who made the napster movie like i have very radical ideas about copyright but you know and she and i got into it like we spent four hours one night talking about copyright so i was really curious to know what her thoughts were right especially given how much time i've spent studying it but she was like look you know artists have been screwed forever frank saw the digital revolution coming he was no idiot and the reality of it is, is, you know, look at how artists are being treated in this landscape. They're being treated poorly. They're not making any money. Like now you can see why we were being so protective. It was literally how we put food on the table for our kids. Um, for sure. So it's going to create probably a hyper defensive mentality. I don't really know what else would happen. You know, she was real opinionated. I miss her so much. I always went to her with any problem I have and she could figure it out. She had that kind of mind, you know. Yeah, she she was very good at, at figuring things out for me. So I really do miss that. Yeah, she was very wise and, and she had lived through an enormous amount. Um, and like you had really, really, uh, really solid recall. And, um, you know, I didn't intend originally to, to even have any talking heads in the film necessarily. But I, in having my conversations with her, I didn't even have financing for the movie when I all those interviews of Gail, because as you know, she passed. She passed before the film was financed, much less the Kickstarter was done. So um, I just brought started going up to the house with a camera and shooting her in the house and having these conversations with her. I have like nine or ten hours of, of really beautiful uh, footage of her, um, which I'll do something with at some point because. You know, it is a very sexist business, as you know, and having this woman's perspective on that era who was incited in that way, like yourself, you've done a lot of great work chronicling your experiences. And uh, there's got to be, I think there's something there at some point. I just don't know what form it would take, but it, the conversations were amazing. Absolutely. She was our manager of the GTOs for 20 minutes or so. <laughs> <laughs> and that was quite a time. I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's a. I, I've actually said this to Ahmed. That's a doc that should be made at some point. There needs to be a really good GTOs doc. It's just a question of finding. Oh, I know. People. We've talked about it, but I just lost Mercy in July. I know. I know. I know. It's heartbreaking. Well, I, it's just me and Sparky left, and Sparky doesn't talk about it. Right. But <laughs> I'm still here. In fact, I got the last interview with Gail. The it was a radio interview about the GTOs and her right. recollections of of, uh, of that that time when she managed us and everything. Uh, and you know the kids turned out really creative. 
very creative kids, very interesting yeah. people. Yeah, they're all they're all super bright and super creative. And, you know, when I was going through the media, there's so much cool stuff of them in that house and the amount of creativity and discourse uh, and you know, the way they all interrelated. Again, it was something I identified with as it was very similar to my own upbringing because as smart and great as the parents were, there was a, there was a lot of self-parenting going on. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I was, as you know, I was their governess yeah. on and off. So I saw a lot of that parenting and non-parenting and tried to make up for some of it. Yeah. But yes, house in my high heels. So there were there was you know moments that uh, that uh, probably shouldn't have happened in front of those children. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they all have good memories of me, though. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah, I mean it was it's a it's a very special uh, family, and the 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 world at that time was really really compelling and interesting, and and. You know, I think you could look, you could make a 10 part miniseries on this thing. I was happy to get in and tell our little story and get out. But there's a lot more story there to be told. You know, when when Gail was at her, at her funeral was very somber and sad and she insisted on. Were you I there? Was there? Yeah. Well, then, you know what Amit said when, when she was put right on top of Frank and he said, Gail's where she's always wanted to be on top of Frank. <laughs> that, was, that, that moment was broke that feeling of that heaviness it was just such a perfect moment yeah yeah it was a really beautiful um funeral and memorial yeah it was it was she made herself look like she was in hawaii yeah yeah that's right yeah she had the lay on and yeah yeah, yeah. but i mean we're i was lucky because she was uh you know while she was suffering she was incredibly incredibly cogent and on top of it and articulate uh and you know, as you know, she went into hospice. She declined very quickly. Uh, so before that, uh, in the in the months leading up to that, which is when I was filming her, she was absolutely rock solid. Um, we, you know, there was the Roxy screening during that period. Uh, amazing, amazing documentary. Um, and she got to enjoy all of that stuff. But she was super sharp uh, right up until until the end. Yeah. Actually, there's some footage of me in that documentary that I'm not too thrilled oh, with. Oh, really? Frank told me, have you seen it where I go around to the hall, the band members and Roxy and try to get them to pay attention to me? Right. Oh. <laughs> I, I had a skimpy little outfit on and Frank said, go, go hit on all the, you know, all the band members while they're playing. Yeah. And he had them to ignore me completely. Right. Yeah. I did that part. So it was kind of an embarrassing situation. Yeah. Yeah. No, it completely did, but that was his idea of humor, I suppose. Yeah, he was so theatrical. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's even in that, it's it's really evidently theatrical. It's like a piece of theater. Like all the stuff that's going on on the stage is so obviously theater. And and you know, I said that to Gail when I when I the I, very first time I sat with her because I was so enamored with what he did with the Garrick Theater, because no other music artist had done anything like that before, especially an American artist, like maybe a, a artist in Berlin at that time, but. It was really unheard of for an American rock artist to like leave L.A. and go take up residence in what was essentially an off off Broadway theater and just do stuff all day. And that is I mean, but that's really compelling. You, he came out of that and he had he had the Zappa thing like he 
had the whole thing worked out. And that brilliant idea of his to, to create the whole scene that way. Yeah. That footage was very cool. It was amazing. We were again. It's it's another one of those situations where you're seeing every single last millisecond that we have. Um, uh, that's that's it. Yeah. And we found it in all these places because we because the Garrick was really important to me. So I just kept asking everyone, find more Garrick, find more Garrick. But uh, but we did eventually get all the meat off of that bone. So <laughs> <laughs> well. It's a beautiful documentary. It took me a few days to watch it because it's very emotional yeah. for me to see that. But I really loved it. And I just want to thank you for making it really awesome. Thank you. And, you know, we play music on the show, of course, there's music. So I was wondering if you would uh, tell us a couple of your favorite Zappa tracks. Sure. God, I have so many favorites. Um, because we're talking about Don, I would, I would, I would say Willie the Pimp would be uh, a favorite. I'm a little pimp with my hair gas back. Hair down your pants with my shoes shine black. Got a little lady walked that street Telling all the boys that she played me Twenty dollar bill, I can sit you straight. Meet me on the corner, boy, I don't believe. Man in a suit with a bow tie neck. Wanna buy a club with a day I love uh, I love watermelon and Easter hay. I love everything off of Yellow Shark. I love dog's breath variations. Uh, there's lots of good stuff there. Um, uh, you know, Peaches and Regalia is probably getting overused at this point. I do love it so much, but it, yeah, it is such it. an amazing, yeah, amazing piece of music. Anything off of Joe's garage is a is a can't miss. Ah, um, there's a lot there. Yeah, yeah, you know me, like I'm a I'm, I've been li I've been living in li every single piece of music of his for for years at this point. So like, I could I could give you a list as long as my arm. But I I love I love the early stuff and I love the later stuff equally. Um, I even love the Sinclair stuff. So something off of Civilization could be fun. So uh, that's not as, as commonly heard. And there's pretty some cool. pretty cool stuff on that, including the title track. So, yeah. And they called that doing their thing. Oh, yeah. That's what doing your thing is. The thing is to put a motor in yourself.
I wanted to tell you one thing Don told me one time when I was probably 17 years old. He's, we were outside looking at stars in Reseda where he had this house with the band. And he said, God is a perfect musical note. That's what God yeah. was yeah, I think that's what, I mean, I think cool, had a similar. I'm not sure he would have put it as literally, but I think this whole idea of the of the note, you know, um, is is similar in that way. And uh, I, I know I, I know what they mean. And I certainly know, given those two artists, how how that what that means to them. So, you know, there's a moment in the in the end of the movie you know, where he's playing. And it's not a summation because Zappa's whole life was amazing. And he had uh, moments of insight all the time, including when he was a kid. But you could see on his face that he just like, he just hit it, you know, like he hit it. He hit that note. And it's very satisfying knowing his, his time was up and he uh, knew his time was up and just the joy of being in that note and in that moment, you know. Exactly. He, he really did radiate joy yeah. when he was in, in his groove. Well, thank you so much, Alex. Thank you. And um, yeah, yeah, I'll give look you a big forward to seeing you out in the like wild this. again. And uh, yeah, be safe and be well. Thank you, Pam. It's always, always great. And thank you again for being so wonderful in the film. Everyone loves your stuff in it. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I, of course, of course. Okay. Mwah. Bye. He has realized at last that imaginary guitar notes and imaginary exist only in the imagination of the imaginer. And ultimately, who gives a fuck anyway? Frank Zappa, huh? Boy, what a lot of insight into him. You guys have to check this movie out. Zappa, okay? It's streaming all over the place, and it's brilliant. And I'm in it, of course. <laughs> so that was Alex Winter. What a trip. He was such a cool guy. You know, obviously, I figured he would be. But wasn't that fun and informative? I really enjoyed that. And you have been to Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party. And I hope to see you again here real soon. You've been listening to Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party. Produced by Aaron Alden and Christian Swain. All sound design by Jerry Danielson and Busy Signal Studios. Find Miss Pamela at Pamela DeBar on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Find all the Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you find great podcasts. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Pantheon Podcasts. Rock and Roll Archaeology on Instagram and Pantheon Pods on Twitter.
At The Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com slash workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 